Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to continue to look at our life of Jesus and his teaching again this week. But this week, we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way. Instead of looking at an event in the life of Jesus and bringing some bigger and bigger and deeper context to that, um, this week, we're going to be looking at, the sto- at a story that Jesus tells as the result of a question. But for us to even come close to understanding what's taking place in this story, we're going to need to understand so much context and so much of what we don't know when we read that story. That when we read that story, we can read it and we can can understand something. But for us to really understand the full slate of everything that Jesus is saying here, there's, there's some things that we just don't intrinsically know that we need to learn and to discover. And so in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching at the Mount of Olives. He's, he, he's just kind of found a place and he sat down and he's teaching and, and people are coming to him and they're, they're asking him questions and they're, they're talking. And, and verse 25 starts our story where verse 25 starts out with, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, sometimes we read a phrase like this, and and we read, stood up to test Jesus, and and because we know how the story unfolds with Jesus, that that we know know what the story of Jesus and the religious leaders and Jesus and the experts in the law, how all of that transpires, we see this, and we we see... perhaps in our minds, a setting much like this, where Jesus is teaching and and somebody stands up and asks a question in the middle of of everything else that's going on. But the reality is that Jesus was was seen in the culture of the day. People would have considered him a rabbi or a teacher. And and this is actually the normal way for a rabbi's teaching to occur. Um, We we understand the way that we we get taught the Bible and and scripture and all of these things is that I come up and and I talk and, and you don't get a lot of input on what I'm talking about. That I get up and I say, turn to Luke chapter 10. I don't get up and you say, Brad, could you talk about Acts chapter 6? Um, But that's how things more or less worked back then. That Jesus would, would, would come and people would begin to ask him questions. And, and that's how most of the teaching would take place, that, that someone would ask a question. And so then a rabbi would begin to unpack and answer that question. We've since moved away from that model because you don't need to hear a whole bunch of unprepared answers from me. Um, I can sometimes get them right, but sometimes I might get them wrong. So, so we can move to that model, but just know you have to really take what you hear with a grain of salt. Um, but Jesus is just answering questions. And so this lawyer, this expert in the law, he gets up and he's got a question for Jesus. And it's a good question. It's a right question. It's a good question to ask, how do I get eternal life? That may be a question that some of us 
are wondering about today. Some that you may have in your life is, is how do I receive eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to spend eternity in heaven with God? And so this lawyer comes and he asks Jesus this question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the man with a question. He doesn't answer with an answer. He answers with a question. And what we're going to see is, is actually Jesus never answers that question. Or sorry, no, sorry, Jesus does answer this question in a way, but he never really answers any of the questions. But, but we'll read to see what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Essentially saying, well, what, what do you think the scripture says? And you can imagine for a lawyer that, that maybe this was a moment that, that he, he, he was ready to shine. That, you know, he likes to argue. He likes to debate. He likes to give answers. That's what they do for a living. And so he stands up and, and, the Lord, and, the, and Jesus said, well, what do you think? And, and the man's got his answer locked and loaded. In front of everybody, he's ready to give an answer. Verse, verse 27 says, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus commends him. Jesus says to the lawyer, well done, way to go. Verse 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly, replied Jesus. Do that and you will live. Great job, man. You got that one right. You nailed the correct answer. Now, this gives the lawyer this, this a sense of... of, of all right, I, I, I am on to something here. I, I know what we're going to do here. And, and so he pushes even a little further on this whole correct answer thing. The next verse, verse 29, starts out saying, but he wanted to justify himself. That it's not enough that he has a right answer because, you know, the next question is like, okay, love, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you are. So then the next question is, okay, well, how do you do that? And the lawyer stands up to continue his questioning to say, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand here in front of everybody justified. I'm going to stand here in front of everybody and they're going to know that I'm doing this right. So I'm going to ask Jesus a, another question and then when I get the answer to that one right, I'm going to look really good. I, I'm going to be justified in front of everybody. Jesus is going to have to say, man, you've got this figured out. So he says too, he, but he wants to justify himself. He's not trying to like make himself feel better. That's not what he means, but that's not what it means by justified. What it means by justified is he wants to show himself more righteous, show himself more correct. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, that's great. So, so I need to love God. Well, okay, we know what that means. We've got the Old Testament. I need to love my neighbor. So Jesus, well, then who, who is my neighbor? Who do I need to go and love? It, it, the man asks a, a very philosophical kind of question. Who do I need to love, Jesus? How, how do I find the line in my life of what it looks like to love my neighbor? Who is on the inside and, and who is on the outside? Because I know that there's people I'm supposed to love, but I also know that there's people out there that don't deserve love. So where, how do we find that line, Jesus? 
Jesus, if I'm supposed to go out and love my neighbor, how, how do I side, decide who I'm supposed to love? Now, the man has an expectation to the answer that Jesus is going to give. And he's confident that he's going to already be doing it. That's why he's looking to be justified in the answer that Jesus is giving. It's, it's what he's seeking, the justification of Jesus. That Jesus would say to him, those in your circle, your friends, your family, the people who are around you, there, there may be something in there about the poor, but, but really love the people you have an opportunity to love. But at the end of whatever Jesus is going to say, the lawyer's going to be able to say, I got that, Jesus. Yeah, I got that. He's looking for Jesus to give him another attaboy. But instead, Jesus takes this question, and he tells the man and all those gathered around a story. In reply, for a story of a man going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. So Jesus tells the story of a man walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and immediately there's some context that we need to unpack because you don't know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if I say that and you do, you're one of very only few that do. But we are the people of the day, when Jesus said, you're going on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, they understand what, what that means. We don't, but they do. There's some particularities about the road between Jerusalem and Jer Jericho that drive home the point of this parable with, with some greater power. To get this fully, though, we have to understand the climate and the terrain of the area. See, the Mediterranean Sea pushes warm air, most moist air across, is across Israel until it reaches the elevated ridgeline that Jerusalem is, is situated on. And the range there squeezes out all the moisture and air, leaving the land to the east of Jerusalem arid. That's where Jericho is. So, so when you see pictures of Jerusalem, oftentimes it's green and it's lush, but it sits right on the top of a ridge, and all the moisture gets pushed out on that ridge. And so this picture behind me, that's the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's, it is, is all that moisture gets pushed out, and none of it is left for there. And so it's a dry, arid desert. Now, the city of Jericho exists because it's actually situated on an oasis in the middle of a desert. So it's desert all around, but Jericho is built on top of an oasis. And so that's how it exists in the middle of this desert. But the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's no oasis. It's just the desert. It's also a very rough walk. Um, it's about 29 kilometers, but it's not just the distance that makes it hard. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho is actually about 850 feet below sea level. So over the course of that 29 kilometers, it is a tremendous hike downhill. And if you've done hikes where, that are downhill, a lot of times, they're not just straight down the hill because that's really hard to do. Or if you're walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, to walk straight up the hill. But those kinds of paths, those kinds of trails, tend to switchbacks. And so it's, it's a long, long walk in the desert 
downhill for a long, long ways. And so given the terrain, people on this road were easy targets for bandits. They were easy targets for robbers who, who would have found ample hiding spaces and escape routes into the desert where no one would have pursued them. So, so saying this, this lone man set out on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was essentially saying there was a man who was in a place he never should have been. There was somebody who was somewhere, they never should have been there by themselves on this journey. We don't understand that when we read that. They're on a trip, but the people who, who, were, who were hearing this when they said, a one man off by himself goes on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, people would say, oh, he shouldn't have done that. This story's not going to end well for him. So he's traveling somewhere that he should not have been in a way that he should not have been. And everyone listening to the story knows that. And unfortunately, the reason why this man was in a place that he shouldn't have been happens to him. And he's assaulted and robbed and left for dead. And the re reality of, 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 of this situation is that a person who was, who was in that man's situation would have been in a very desperate situation. Because remember, it's a desert. There's no food, there's no water, there's no grass, there's no shade, there's no trees. It's a desert. So he is out at the mercy of the sun and the dryness of the desert. He would have been utterly exposed and isolated, desperate for help. If no one intervenes, this man will die. If no one meets his needs, his life is over. And Jesus continues to tell the story. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, the crowd who's listening to this probably sees a lot of inspiration in this moment. A priest was going to show them what it means to love this man. A priest is the hero in this story. If you're telling this story, if you're hearing this story, this is the person who's supposed to be the hero. And so what we're going to learn from this story is that there's a man in a place that he shouldn't have been. But a man of God comes and takes care of him. We're going to be shown the love of God by this man. What does it mean to love our neighbor? It means to love like this priest surely will. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. Anyone coming up on such a victim would have, would have not been easily avoided them. At, at points, the road is so narrow that a passerby would literally only have the choice to step over the body because the road was so narrow. So that this priest is coming by. It, he cannot miss this man. He has to see him. And he passed by on the other side. Okay, not the way I would have gone. Not, not the traditional story. This is why Jesus was such a great storyteller. He takes your expectations and turns them on their head. But I can see Jesus making a point about understanding love in a way that, that shows us that it's not just about position. That the priest should help him because he's a priest. But that's not how we're supposed to love. We're not supposed to, to, to somehow give away our care for other people to, to other people. It needs, Jesus is going to show us that, that even a regular Joe could do this. Even a normal person. Not a, not a priest, not, a, not somebody elevated, but just, just a regular Joe. Nice to see you, Joe. It, was, it wasn't right for the priest to leave the man. But it was my own expectation that the priest should help. But it's bigger than leaving it to the priests. It's all of us. Okay, we got you now. Now we're back on track, Jesus. So Jesus continues to tell the story. 
So to a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw the man, okay, a Levite, I see what Jesus is saying. Levites, if you don't know, they're sort of like priest assistants. They, they would do sort of the, the priest was like the, the, the guy, and the Levite was the guy who made the guy the guy, would do all the work behind the scenes, make sure the temple was running properly, all of those, those kinds of things. We have any number of Levites inside of our church who do such an incredible job of helping me look like I know what I'm doing. And so I'm grateful for all of the Levites in our church. But we, so, so we see the Levites showing in, the priest was busy. He had stuff to do. He's got a schedule. He can't take time to, to care for this person. He's, he's probably on a journey that's incredibly important. So, so surely the Levite will, will help. The Levite will show us. The Levite will show us that, that we can all contribute in the loving of our neighbors. Okay, I got you, Jesus. Well, he passed by on the other side too. Okay, Jesus, now, now you're starting to lose me. I, I'm not at all following this story. Where are you? I, you so maybe you're going to bring it down one step lower? I, I don't know. But then Jesus pushes his audience even further. And he does it with three words. But a Samaritan. If you've heard people speak about this story, if you have, have an awareness of how this, this works, you know that the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. They, they said that in the video. They said, oh, the Jewish people, they, they, they hated the Samaritans. They didn't just hate the Samaritans. They were viewed as not people. Like, literally, their lives carried no value. The commandment, the law against murder, if it was justified, didn't extend to the Samaritans for Jewish people. You are not allowed to murder anyone unless a Samaritan deserved it. In which case, more power to you. It's not just that they didn't like them. They literally were a people that the Jewish people looked at and said, you're not people. It's why in, in, in John chapter 4, when Jesus would meet with the Samaritan woman, why she's so caught off guard that Jesus is talking to her is because this is, it's not just that there was like this weird tension that existed between them. That This morning, Pastor Matt is talking to me about the hockey game last night, the Flames game and the Canucks game. And he's telling me about how, oh, there was a, there was a, there was a penalty on Lindholm, and then that led to the goal, and that never should have. And there's a tension because I'm saying, well, too bad. <laughs> Sorry, man. Flames won. There's a tension that that's not what this is like. That this, this runs so much deeper. The roots of this intense hatred actually stretch back. If you don't know, they stretch back to the Assyrian captivity. And so what took place with the Assyrians is that they had a very specific way of conquering a land, of taking over an area. And so what they would do, because they, what they felt was like that if people felt displaced and uncomfortable, they were not going to revolt against the empire. So they, they, had, a, they had a plan where what they would do is every time they would come and take over an area, they would, they would remove a whole bunch of the citizens that lived there and force them to go live somewhere else. So that they would feel displaced, disconnected, unsure of where they are. And, and so, but in order to do that, they needed to bring people from somewhere else 
and force them to live where the Jewish people is. So, so they would take a bunch of the Jewish people, move them somewhere else, and they'd move other people into where the Jewish people used to live just to keep everybody off balance. Just, just to, because you, then you, you're, dis, you're discombobulated. You're just, we're not going to rise up. We don't even know where we are. This isn't my home. I don't know where I am. This is uncomfortable. I don't like living here. And so you created sort of a, a place where people weren't going to rebel. And so, but what happened was the Jewish people were taken away into captivity. Some were left behind. And so the people who were left behind, when this new group of people were brought in to live there, they didn't keep themselves separate from them. And they began to live life with them. And they discovered they really liked them. And some of their girls were pretty. And some of their men were good looking. And they started to get married. And they started to have kids together. And so then when, when the Assyrian captivity, when, when the Jews were allowed to return home, they returned home not to find a pure Jewish people that were left behind, but they had intermarried. They had had kids with these people that weren't even Jewish. And if you read through the Old Testament... This is one of the things that actually God commands specifically. Don't do that. Do not intermarry with other nations. Keep yourself set apart for me as my people. And so when the Jewish people saw that, that these people that had been left behind didn't do that, they stood in harsh judgment of them. And they forced them to live outside of society. That's why when you, when you read about Jesus and he would travel from, from uh, the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem and he'd have to pass through Samaria. Well, if you, it, a traditional Jewish way of traveling is actually they wouldn't go straight because that would take you through Samaria. They would go out and all the way around so that they could avoid going into Samaria because these people were terrible people. And now what you need to know and you need to understand about that is that this wasn't just some kind of jingoistic, xenophobic, simply racist kind of prejudice that, that we just hate them because they're them. But they were believed that they were justified in the Lord. That this was the commandment that God had given them and, and Israel had, had, had gone against this and God had stood in judgment of them. And it was the kind of thing that God did not look favorably on. And, and so when these people did this, they broke God's laws and they needed to be punished. And so the people of the day took that upon themselves and said, all right, God, we got you. We're going to punish them. So you see... The listeners not only would have expected, a, or would not have expected a Samaritan to be, or would have expected the Samaritan to be unsympathetic to the plight of the victim, they probably would have expected the Samaritan to be the perpetrator. In fact, when, the, when Jesus said some men came and attacked him, their mind probably pictured Samaritans attacking because they're dirty, bad people, and we don't like them, and anything that's bad is probably their fault. But Jesus is getting really confusing because the situation just seemingly keeps going from bad to worse. You see, the priest doesn't do anything. That's bad. The Levite doesn't do anything. That's really bad. Now there's a Samaritan. I don't know what the Samaritan is doing here, but somehow the only way a Samaritan fits into this story is that he's really going to show us how not to love. 
Because if a Samaritan is here and now, the only direction things can go is they're about to get a whole lot worse. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Wait, he did what? Who? No, Jesus, you've got this wrong. You're confused, you're mistaken, you've lost your place in the story. This is why preachers use notes. Because they don't forget, so then you don't forget who the good guy in the story is. Somehow, Jesus, you've got it confused. I don't know what you're going for here, but now you've lost us. The, the audacity of Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the story would have made everyone around him, would have made the lawyer and everyone else furious. You could probably see them clenching their fists in anger, people angry, scoffing, perhaps people starting to heckle. People maybe laughed. People got up and left. But Jesus goes on and he begins to talk about the incredible care that the Samaritan has for this man. How he brings him to an inn and he cares for him and he bandages him on the side of the road and he puts him up on his donkey and carries him to this inn and he puts them into the inn and tells the innkeeper, here's money and if it costs more, I'll come back and I'll give you even more, even at his own personal expense. And so Jesus brings the story to a close and he asks the lawyer to summarize his story for him. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, here's something that I really need for us to see today. The man had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But Jesus doesn't answer that question with this story. The question the man asked was in a way to justify himself. Remember that? The story doesn't answer that question. The moral of this story is not understanding fully who your neighbor is. But the man says, who do I need to love? Who is it that I'm bound by God to love and to care for? Who is on the inside? And this story doesn't answer that. You can, you, can, you can take some things and say, well, because the man who, who was showing love, well, we should love people who are in places they shouldn't be. We should love people even if they've made bad decisions. The point of the story is so that Jesus can ask the man this question. This is the point of the story. The lesson of the Good Samaritan isn't found in the story of the Good Samaritan. This was all lead up to get to a place where Jesus could put this man in this place so he had to answer this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the man attempts to answer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now don't think for, it's a, don't think for a second that it's a coincidence that the man cannot even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That is a bridge too far, and he's not taking it. The idea that he would have to stand up in front of people and even imply something good about a Samaritan is something he is simply not willing to do, and it's not just him that wouldn't be willing to do it. Had the story gone a little differently, and people, other people were asked, well, okay, what do you think? 
What do you think? The consensus of the crowd would have been, well, the third guy. Well, who was the third guy? You know, the nice one. Well, who was the nice one? He was the third guy. They're not going to be tricked into saying something nice about a Samaritan. But again, notice the question isn't, who is your neighbor? Jesus doesn't say, out of that, who is your neighbor? The question was, who in the story acted like a neighbor? And it was a test for the man to be able to see if he could love his neighbor when his neighbor was a Samaritan. The story wasn't necessarily just to learn from what not to do from the priest and the, Lava, the, the, priest and the Levite and what to do from the Samaritan. The test was for this man to be able to stand up in front of this group of people and say, a Samaritan did something nice. Could this man actually come to a place where it's not even that Jesus is asking him to do anything, but to just simply say something nice about a hypothetical Samaritan person? Jesus goes into great detail about how the Samaritan man loves this poor beaten man, cares for him, bandages him up, takes him to a hotel, pays for him to stay there until he's better, and gives the hotel manager money out of his own pocket to pay for him, and says he'll be back to pay for more. Then Jesus says to the lawyer, say something nice about that man. And the man can't do it. He can't bring himself to do it. Or he just barely can as long as he doesn't have to admit, as long as he actually doesn't have to say the word Samaritan. I would submit to you today, the point of this story is in the journey that the lawyer takes. It's in the thing he couldn't do. It's something he never even would have entertained as a possibility. Because the answer to that question that he asked, who is my neighbor? It was, in his mind, the answer was never going to have anything to do with a Samaritan. Because they were just that hated. You were not going to have the answer of a Samaritan even come up. Because they're not to be loved. They are a symbol of disobedience to God and we don't love that. It starts with a philosophical question. How do I gain eternal life? Well, by loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? But Jesus needs to expose something deep down in this man's heart. Deep down in the underbelly of his thought process. The point of this whole story wasn't just to say that everyone is your neighbor. Although that's a good lesson to take out of this, and I've preached that. I have preached that when we understand the Good Samaritan, we understand that everyone's our neighbor. It's not wrong. It's a good thing to take away. It's right, and it's true. But deeper than that, the point of this story is that this man is asked a question seeking to justify himself, to validate his self-righteousness. And knowing that, Jesus tells this story to put a man in a position where his justifications and his self-righteousness is forced to be confronted by what really is in his heart. Jesus asked the man to answer this question, who is my neighbor? Who in this story acted like a neighbor? By forcing him 
to see something he can't imagine seeing in someone he can't imagine loving. By forcing him to see and interact with a part of his heart that was ugly. But a part that even though it was ugly for this lawyer and for the people of his day, it may have been ugly, but brother, it's justified ugliness. And Jesus was saying that self-righteous ugliness, that justified ugliness, you want to know who your neighbor is? Start there. And I want to close today by inviting you into something really uncomfortable. I want to close our time off together with some real uncomfortableness for us. But hopefully... It's a God-led uncomfortableness. Hopefully, it's something that, that as this lawyer was put in a position to be uncomfortable, I'm going to invite you to step into that position as well this morning. If you're new to church, sorry that you came this week. Um, for all of us, God wants to confront the ugliness that all of us have. And so if you're new to church, God wants to do this in your life too. But I want to ask us if we would take a step, a step that would be a little weird. No, not weird. A little uncomfortable. Because this is the work that I believe God wants to do in us today. To show us the dirty underbelly of our thoughts. To show us where we're missing what God has for us. See, if you ask yourself the question, who's the villain in this story? Obviously, it's not the Samaritan. We can all agree with that. The Samaritan wasn't the villain. It's not the man. It's not the priest. Although you could argue. It's not the Levite. Although you could argue a little bit. I'll submit to you today, the villain of this story was the lawyer was his thought patterns, was his assumptions, was his self-righteousness and his justification. And so what I'm going to ask for you to do today, we're not going to do this right now, but I'm going to invite you to take, enter into this process. I'm going to ask for you today to take a moment and invite the Lord to speak to us, to speak to you, to maybe tell you a story. To tell you a story where you are the villain. To invite God, to invite Jesus to treat us the way he treated that lawyer. To show us our places of self-righteousness. Our places of our own justification. To show us the dirty parts of us. And to show us, to show me, to show you where our self-righteousness, where our own justification have caused us to miss out on fully what God has for us. To, open, to, to be open to the idea that the answer to that question is perhaps something you wouldn't expect. Something that you wouldn't have even entertained. Something that you might feel justified in feeling. And allow God to say that 
that person, those people, that idea, that stance, that division in your life, that thing, that's it. And to allow our hearts to be open enough to receive it, accept it. And as Jesus said to the man, go and do it. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come to you today asking you, as, as, David, as David would pray in the Psalms, as David would write, as David would say, search us, try us, and God, see if there be any wicked way in us. God, we as a people can allow for self-righteousness, can allow for, for ju a justified sense of self-righteousness in so many ways. And God, for all of us, it might be something different. For all of us, in this moment, we may not even be aware that this thing exists. But God, I pray that you would give us the courage in our own lives to be able to ask a question that would lead us to a difficult place so we could find a beautiful truth. God, the, the, you, the reason for these exercises is not for you to make us feel guilty. It's not for us to discover shame. It's not for us to somehow feel terrible about ourselves. But God, it's so that you can uncover places in our lives that are not the way that they should be. And God, woe be on us if we think there's not those places in our lives. Because we need to become more like you today, and we need to become more like you tomorrow. And so, God, my prayer for each of us today is that we would, by the incredible power of your Holy Spirit, have the light of heaven shone into our lives. And God, if there be any wicked way in us, God, would you remove it? Would you take it out? God, as, as justified and as, as self-righteous as we may feel because we know that this is what should be, God, may if your, your spirit convicts us of it, may we be able to lay it down. May we be able to, to love the way we've been called to love. May we be able to live the way we've been called to live. May we be able to understand ourselves, our lives, our world, and the people in it, and us, with a vision and an understanding that only you can bring. Jesus, show us if there be any wicked way in us. So that we could walk free. So that we could leave that behind. So that we would be able to walk forward from here for now. God, without our blinders on, but with the light of heaven shining brightly into our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I was young, you called my name. 
Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca, or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on Contact Us from the main menu, or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on Our Pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. That's the kind of God you are. You gave me freedom from my sin. You told me I could start again. All I heard is dead and gone. Now we're your daughters and your sons. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Once we're lost, but now we're found. Forever you hold us in your arms, cause that's just the kind of God you are. Just stepped into the dark Cause that's just the kind of God 
you are.